it's so thrilling to see so many people who are special to me. It's my favorite view, and I, I miss this. <laughs> I miss this the most. There is somebody here who is uh, special to all of us. Um, you know, back 72 years ago, when the Ethical Society was founded, um, it took a couple people really stepping up to be leaders. And one couple particularly stood, uh, stood up, and that was the Beechams. And today, Catherine Beecham is here today. And I just want to thank you very much. For what? Virginia, I'm sorry. sorry. Virginia Beecham, I apologize. Um, today, I, kinda, I want to reintroduce myself. Um, it's, uh, when I left, I thought about what do I want to do the rest of my life. And uh, the two words that came to me were meaningful adventure. Meaningful is I want to use my life to help people in, in some way. And adventure is I want to do something where I really didn't know how it was going to all turn out, that I had to constantly figure out what, what was going on. Um, and in doing all of that, I learned some lessons that I'd like to share with you today. Um, some of you may call that before Global Colle- uh, Connections, West had launched International Partners um, as a social um, a mission outreach project. And since my retirement, I've been spending about three months a year uh, in El Salvador. Uh, and I'm very fortunate that Nancy and my family, Dan and Mary, support me uh, in doing that. Uh, and I'm also fortunate that the West member, who was the original executive director, is still there and still working as the leadership partner in Paula Beckman. Um, very lucky that the uh, West members who are on the board, like Andy Stern and uh, um, uh, Jane Perkins, are still on the board. And if you recall, we named it for Cassie Stern. She is a, a girl who grew up in this community, was in our Sunday school, but at 813 she, she died uh, tragically, and we um, have been... Uh, memorializing, honoring her by keeping her spirit alive, giving opportunities to people born without them. Um, I'd like to just focus on the people uh, that we've been working with um, and ask you to imagine this. Uh, Imagine that your life was like about one-third of all human beings. Uh, That would mean that when you leave here today, you would walk home, no matter how many miles it is, uh, there's no option there's no to, to walking, um, that when you get home, you'll find a one- or two-room shelter made out of mud bricks, and when you're inside, it's very much like you're in a hole in the dirt. Uh, the, the dirt floor is dirt, and it has all these rivulets going through because in the rainy season, the water washes through. So anything you own, if you happen to own a bed or whatever, is on little rocks so the water can go um, underneath. Um, at night, you probably will uh, string a hammock from wall to wall for sleeping. Um, there's no water in the house unless you walk and get it, which is always very much down. That's what water does. And you have to carry it up. And if you have a big family, numerous times. Um, the um, uh, bathroom is a dug latrine outside. Um, when your children are sick or you're, you're suffering, uh, there's no painkillers. Uh, there's no antibiotics. Um, you don't go to a doctor because you can't afford that. Um, If your children go to school, they have to walk very often miles to get to school for a half-day session. Um, There's um, no books, uh, often no paper. Um, There will be um, uh, computers, of course, and the teachers are not uh, very well trained. Um, If you are among the half of the rural population that has a job, you'll earn about 8 or $9 a day. Um, 
mostly the other half will rent a plot of land and plant corns and beans, um, and uh, that's what you'll eat through the year. And you're hoping for a surplus so that you can earn four or five hundred dollars uh, that year. Um, if there's a, uh, a crime, there's no police, there's no courts. Um, you don't get a vacation. You don't have an emergency savings fund. And uh, you're not going to ever retire. You're going to work until you die. But worst of all, worst of all, is that you are invisible. That people living in luxury don't know or don't care that you are stuck in poverty, as your grandparents were and your parents were and your children will be. You don't have opportunities. You've got nowhere to turn, no hope. Uh, as if your life didn't count. That's the worst, the spiritual pain of that. Now, the vision of international partners is that no one, no matter how poor, uh, should live without access to basic nutrition, basic health care, uh, education, and opportunities to create a better world. The headquarters for international partners now is in El Salvador. It's a dairy farm and a training school. Uh, it employs about 50 people, including our social programs, which um, among those, it's, it's a place where there are no other jobs, so those 50 jobs are very valued. Um, it's a dairy, and, which makes it a social business. The profits from that dairy go to support our um, training director and our director of social programs. Um, we have about 120 cows. Uh, the central program of our social programs is a um, uh, we, we work with the elected town councils of these small communities. Uh, you may be elected to town council, but you may not be able to read. Many of our proposals have thumbprints uh, on them. Um, and so we do a monthly training in which we support people to do community surveys, set priorities for projects, and then how to do a project design and a, and a budget. And then we find delegates here, high school in summer and um, in January, uh, college students. And they go down, usually we have about 75 a year, 12 to a community, and they live with these subsistence farm families. And they build the projects, and the projects are usually piping water to houses or building an education center, um, uh, fish pond, a variety of things. But the education centers themselves have become a very popular program for these remote communities. Uh, there, uh, what we're doing is uh, we're providing a teacher, which we train with a curriculum that we've, we, we've created. And uh, after school, kids go there for homework, and they go there for, well, we have 1,200 books, and we have computers, which the schools don't have. Um, and we give classes in reading and writing and math um, and problem-solving and um, um, uh, practical science and music and art. Um, that education center becomes the center of the community around which the whole community operates. It makes education uh, really important. And finally, we do scholarships. Parents cannot afford uh, $250 in variety of costs to go to school. And particularly if you have more than one kid and you own a couple hundred dollars a year, um, uh, you can't afford it. And so we have donors who um, um, uh, give scholarships to a lot of these kids to go to school. Uh, and the person who actually coordinates as a volunteer happens to be here today. Missy, thank you very much, Missy. Um, this is uh, the once not known to me world um, that ended up validating the very humanistic spirituality that I espouse from this platform as um, a, 
a philosophy that would create a more satisfying life in a, in a better world. And that is what I want to talk about, is what I've learned from working with these people in these programs. Well, personally, my spiritual journey really started when I came to the, uh, the Ethical Society 49 years ago. Um, in my first 22 years, I, I spent pretty much trying to figure out what I did not believe. But in reading Felix Adler, he put forward some pretty challenging questions, one of which was, your behavior and thereby your life are not shaped by what you don't believe, but by what you do believe about how the world works. But his biggest shocking question to me was, the most important religious question is how you define spirituality. At the time, I defined spirituality as BS. Uh, <laughs> therefore, to describe you know, my spiritual journey, uh, uh, or to, I, I need to define spiritual as in humanistic spirituality. Now, spiritual does not mean something ghost-like. It doesn't mean something supernatural or otherworldly. Spiritual, in its literal definition, is animating vitality of a thing. The spirit, the thing that makes it alive, the thing that animates it. That animation is the definition of spirit. Um, Your animating vitality can be very high, it can be very low. When it's inanimate, you're dead. You, some of you may recall the humanistic sign of the cross. Um, the, the, uh, uh, this is the lifeline. You're born, this is your time, you're dead. Birth to death, your lifeline, your timeline. Along that line, there are moments and events that happen all along that line. And the quality of your life is not determined by those events. The quality of your life is determined by the spiritual dimension, which can be very high. Energetic, creative, joyful, or it can be very low. It can be negative, destructive, depressed, exhausted. This is supreme being, a verb, supreme being. And this is hell, also a verb. Why does your animating vitality go up and down? Well, there are certain behaviors, there are certain strategies that determine whether in a moment of time It goes up and down. But we're not going to talk about those today. You have to get the book for that. (laughs) Today, I want to talk about my experiences in El Salvador and how it validated the two things which are essential for animating vitality to rise. And um, before I say that, I I don't want to um, romanticize the poverty and the problems in El Salvador. But one of the things that you do find that happens there is that free from all the stuff and the diversions and the complexity of our lives, you get to see unadorned the nature of the human spirit. Um, Or putting another way, a question that amazes everybody who goes is, why are people this poor, so generous, loving, and happy? I say two forces because human nature is paradoxical. We are each an individual. We're a unit. We end at our own skin. You know, we have our own birth. We have our own death. We feel our own pain, feelings, and, and, and thoughts. We're individual. But at the same time, we're also social animals. Without other people, we don't develop our capacities for language, 
Therefore, we don't have words. We have concepts to think with. We don't develop reasoning. We, we don't learn to read. Half the people in the world don't ever learn to read because they don't have the opportunity to. No one teaches them. Um, we would not survive infancy if someone didn't give us unconditional nurturing. Uh, how would our life be more difficult if we didn't have a family and schools and hospitals and governments and businesses Knowledge, technology, all of that of who we are, what our life is like, comes from our being social animals. So we are both one and we are many. But supreme being requires that we cultivate both our personal identity and our social identity. What I have to talk about first is how Salvadorians approach personal identity. Where does self-esteem come from? You know, um, I was an honor student... I have two houses. I used to be the leader of the ethical society. You know, achievements, position, uh, money, popularity, power. These things make us feel good about ourselves, right? It's partly why we do it, right? Adler points out the folly of that. When you make tough decisions, you can lose your popularity. When the economy goes bad, you lose your job or business. When your spouse leaves you and takes the kids the house, and the bank account. When you become ill and you can't function, those are the situations in which you need self-esteem the most, but the foundations are gone, which eventually always happens. An old man in a nursing home is talking to an attendant, and he says, I used to be a surgeon, he used to be a scholar. Now we can't remember what we had for lunch. It happens to us, yes? The poorest people don't have any of these props for their self-esteem. Uh, they have to base it, their personal identity on some natural human capacities. And they base it on hard work, honesty, generosity, good humor, and serving interests outside themselves. Anybody, some of you may remember that uh, the ethical culture mantra, I have self-esteem because I am good, loving, and a creative person. Which means that if you're not good, not loving, and not creative, because who you are is a good, loving, creative person, is you need to go back and clean that up to be a good, loving, and creative person. And that's what you need to do. But you don't need to do more than that. That's all we need to do uh, to uh, establish our self-esteem. Um, when... Uh, we were, we were doing teacher training originally uh, in public schools in El Salvador. And the uh, first thing we would do is a needs assessment. And um, we would have 30 teachers there, and we'd ask them right on the board, what are the most important things that have to happen to improve your school? And what was astounding is that in every single school, they gave the first thing they said was the same thing all the time. And it was, teach religious values better. And of course... From a secular background, it made me feel very uncomfortable. And so I would say, okay, what's number two? <laughs> but eventually, I understood. There is a philosophical war, a war of consciousness between the streets and the schools. The gangs promote self-serving. Might makes right. There's more of us than you, we take your money. The schools are promoting respect, kindness, honesty, cooperation. 
And there, it is a real war. It's a real, it's, it doesn't seem something vague or abstract words. It's real. Salvadoran parents say they want uh, to have their kids get an education. And Paul and some of his students are doing in-depth interviews with scores of, of, of parents and people. And they're finding out, like, what they mean by education. You know, they don't have an education themselves. Um, education doesn't mean you're going to get a job. Education doesn't help you work in the fields. What parents want from schools is to teach their child, children values. That's what they see public schools to do. Teach values that are strong enough so that their kids can resist the gang culture. And it makes me think about our education system and about uh, what we emphasize. You know, don't we tend to emphasize you know, storing up knowledge, uh, getting good grades, getting ahead? And I don't know that we so much emphasize the character development. So for me, the one spiritual validation from life in El Salvador is that unshakable self-esteem is based on how you treat people and nothing more. If you do that, you have unshakable self-esteem. End of story. And you can do that no matter how poor you are or how sick you are. The other dimension of human nature that we need to cultivate is our social identity. My first really acute awareness of my social identity came uh, after 25 years, you guys gave me a sabbatical. And uh, the board member and, and, and president, um, uh, Don... Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was a new idea at the time. Um, and uh, president of the board, uh, board member Donald Spears, uh, arranged that I could go on a USAID project to Ethiopia. It was the first time I ever left the United States. So I get to Ethiopia. People do not see me as Don. You know, they don't care about, you know, my family or my education or my job. They see me as an American. And they want to talk about American lifestyle, Hollywood stars, foreign policy, and they want to know why a country so big and rich can't win the World Cup. Those are... <laughs> so suddenly, uh, I'm responsible for my social identity, and it becomes clear uh, that that's quite different. Now, in non-consuming nations, I love that. It's, it's, it's the new jargon. You know, it's no longer developing or third world. It's the non-consuming nations. Their social identity is cultivated to be the stronger. Just like in consuming nations, personal identity is cultivated to be the stronger. An example, um, our IP employees uh, in El Salvador, they decided they wanted uh, T-shirts, red T-shirts with international partners, Central Cassie. And on the back, they wrote, soy Porque somos. I am because we are. Salvadorans tend to respect other people in a way that is beyond what we do. Everyone's aware that we're part of a social group. So everyone you meet, strangers, whatever on the street, it's buenos dias. And buenos dias is not like hello. Because that's like, you know, hello, hello, hello. Buenos dias, you've got to know, is it buenos dias? Or is it now buenos tardes? Or is it Buenas Noches? And I say, Buenas Noches, and it's not yet Buenas Noches. They say, ah, oh, no, no, it's Buenas Tardes. Because you need to be in the present when you greet me. You can't go anywhere, office, business, anything. What do you want to drink? You know, coffee, water, whatever, soda. Um, 
people hug and kiss each other all the time. A boss can go to work and actually greet, hug and kiss every single employee before he goes to his office. I remember early on sitting in a restaurant and someone walks by and says, uh, uh, Buen Provecho, like Bon Appetit, Buen Provecho. And they go, oh, you know that guy? No, I don't know that guy. Because when you're in a restaurant, you walk by people, Buen Provecho, Buen Provecho. But you're part of this group. You're aware of, of yourself in that social, uh, a social sense. It comes from the fact that parenting goals are very, very different. Our parenting goal is individuation. We really feel good. I'm a good parent because my kid has a job of their own in their own house and they're, they're independent. I've done a good job. Okay. But that's not how it is in, in consuming nations that don't have any kind of government safety net. Um, there, all you have to depend on is family. And so the, the, the heart of parenting is one for all and all for one. That's what you're trying to teach. So Salvadoran immigrants, they come, they suffer hardships and terror and violence and rape to come here to earn money, and they send it back to their families for years, for decades, to support their families. We have a friend who's been here for a dozen or so years. He calls his, his children and his wife. Every single day he talks to them on the telephone. They are part of that. Why is that? Because I am because we are. That's their primary identity as being part of that Social identity is not about who am I. The question is, whose am I? Whom do you represent? Who are you working for? That's your social identity. Um, Those of us who go are very familiar with a dynamic woman named uh, Peggy O'Neill. And she tells a story that she had gone there during the war and she was um, uh, trying to escape an, an, an army incursion. And she and this other woman who was pregnant were running through the woods and it got to be nightfall and they weren't anywhere near in safety and so they had to lay down for the night. And um, they hadn't eaten all day. They were very hungry and the woman takes out of her bag a tortilla. And she's going to tear the tortilla in half. And Peggy says, no, 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 you're pregnant. It's your tortilla. You keep it for yourself. And she says, no, tonight we share the tortilla. Tomorrow, we share our hunger. Lillian is a woman who was, uh, who was a, t- uh, a cook for us. Uh, H delegation, she, was, she, she did the, the, the cooking. Uh, 32 years old, uh, two children. Um, she was a woman who, when she was a child, um, really wanted an education. Her dream was to go to school and be an educated woman. But when she got to be in fifth grade, her father died. So her mother had to go to work, and she ended up going home to take care of all of her younger siblings. But she kept that dream of an education alive so that when she had two children, at this point it was uh, Vanessa at 10 and Brian at 8, um, she went to great lengths to make sure they went to a school. And the school was far away. You, know, you had to walk down the mountain for an hour and take a bus and, uh, for six miles. Um, but they had a truck. There was a truck that went and brought people to school, but you had to pay the money for the truck that went the whole way. And she didn't have that kind of money. So she would gather from fruits and nuts. You know, in El Salvador, there's fruit trees everywhere, fruits I've never even heard of. But they had fruits, and there was always something in bloom, and she would bring them on the truck with her kids, and they'd go, and she'd set them up out herself outside of the school, and she would sell these things to earn enough money for the bus fare for them to go back and forth. Well, two years ago... Lillian started getting stomach pains, and they got worse and worse, and after a week of extreme pain, she died. What was going to happen to the kids? Well, 
her sister Marina every morning comes up, gets to make sure the kids are dressed, has their homework. Don Pepe. Don Pepe um, is a, he's 70 years old, but he looks like he's going on 35, and he's a commandant, and he looks like a gorilla ought to look like. Um, he makes breakfast for them every day. Grandmother creates a little snack. Aminta, who lives down the road and has two children, takes the kids to school. The woman who sells things uh, at the table that was next to hers um, looks out for the kids. And some donors from international partners help pay for, the, for that truck ride. This community kept her vision, her dream of education alive. And it comes from thinking um, it, it, as yourself, as part of a, a, a bigger whole. Expressions of social ID, uh, identity are likely, probably, in your family as well. I mean, I bet you there's some people, particularly the generation who immigrates, immigrates that they did thing out of an expression of, of, of a social need as opposed to a personal need. Uh, in El Salvador, uh, they suffered for 500 years uh, with oppression from an oligarchy who exploited their labor and did not give them uh, any opportunity to vote or any opportunity uh, for, for education. Until one generation decided to sacrifice their personal lives to win in a war the vote in a democratic election for whoever did survive. Well, the United States' role, uh, we spent $5 billion and we gave military support uh, for the oligarchy. Um, that's part of our social identity. But if we stay very busy developing our all-consuming personal identity, and thereby underdeveloping our social identity, we can then convince ourselves that it's not really our problem. I mean, the government probably should have done a better job, but it's not our personal problem. Um, Sam Allen, I think I saw the mother and father here. Sam Allen grew up in this community. Uh, he was on one of our delegations. And uh, it was uh, the last day uh, the bus had taken him from the community, and we spent the day doing reflections. And he was off sitting by himself, and I went and sat next to him, and I said, is everything all right? And he said, well, when I got on the bus, I started crying. He said, I don't usually cry, and I can't understand why I was crying. So I've been thinking about how come, why is this affecting me this way? And he said, what I realized is that I became really close to those people, and friends don't leave friends in situations like that. His social identity was suddenly alive and kicking. You know, at the time of the Civil War, thousands of Quakers moved to Kansas so that they could vote against Kansas becoming a slave state. Now, that's very similar to us because many of us are moving into gerrymandered Tea Party districts in order to affect uh, the, the, the vote because we, too, have that same kind of social conscience. <laughs> now, people sometimes say they admire what we're doing in international partners, but, you know, it's something not easy to take because... What we're doing is really just another opportunity of, of, of privilege because it is extremely fun and it's very, very satisfying, a meaningful adventure. And I think you can ask anyone who's done anything like this that it's not, it does not feel like a sacrifice. Uh, serving our social interests, ironically, is satisfying in a way that's just unattainable in our personal identity. We were at a a gathering to honor the, the, at a public school to the 20 students with outstanding academic activity, academic achievement. And 
while the 20 are standing up there, someone from the audience yells out, how many of you were part of the IP um, uh, preschool and, and the IP education center? And 18 of them raised their hands. And I started crying. Not, actually, I wasn't even sure why. But, although individually, we really can't, obviously, save the world. But individually, we can give a gift of opportunity to one family, one person, one community. And it's within our family budget. A water system, which we pipe water to 400 people so they don't have to walk every day for three hours carrying it, costs about $10,000. Would you pay the $10,000 if this was your family? An education center serving about 200 people. Otherwise, they wouldn't get an education. You know, you can graduate from, uh, from a public school and not know how to multiply or divide, for example. These education centers cost about $5,000 a year. And there are people in this room who do fund it and scholarships as well. Now, we're not talking about guilt here. Guilt is not a motivator of the social self. Guilt is something about the personal self. We're talking about gratitude. We need to express gratitude for the fact that we are socially connected. We happen to be born in a very fertile social environment. And virtually everything we have is because we were born here and not there. And gratitude for that, if we feel our gratitude, gratitude enters, we enter into being our social self when we begin to realize the gratitude that we, that we owe. And with that gratitude, it's about finding a way to personally, individually, open the circle of opportunity for people who were born into poverty. Or to work for cure some social ill, or work to make the future better. But find some personal way of doing that to express our, 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 our social self. In fact, we are always, since we're social beings, we're always expressing our soul, serving our social mission whether we're aware of it or intentionally or not. You can't buy a cup of coffee without deciding whether someone somewhere is working in a pesticide environment getting poisoned or not. Everything we do has its social consequences. The only thing is that we're trained to pay attention to our personal identity and not our social, which means to say we become very conscious of what our personal choices are and what those consequences are, but we're less sensitive to what our social consciousness is, what our social choices are and those consequences. Our generation has had the opportunity to focus on our personal well-being and how ironic it is that while half of the world is undernourished, we suffer from diseases of excess. We, the most educated and financially secure generation ever, can be the greatest sucking of resources in human history. Or we can be the greatest investment of talent to improve the quality of human life ever. You know, when Moses reached the Red Sea, um, it didn't part. Not until after he had waded into the water. Well, similarly, we cannot know or see our social path, our social mission, until we take our first steps into the unknown, on the path. We've got to do it ourselves because our personal consumption culture does not cultivate our social self. If we're going to have a social self, we have to do it ourselves. You know, in the moments of life, 
in all those moments of life. When our spirits are low, animating our vitality depends on cultivating a twofold nature. Supreme being, supreme being is possible when our identity is based on doing good in our personal relationships, always eliciting the best no matter what, while also at the same time expressing our social identity, cultivating a better world for everybody. Those two things together is what creates supreme being. Now, some people who travel in the wilderness discover that there's a walled city with happy, generous people, even though they may be poor. And then they go back to tell others that it's possible. And that's why I came today. Thanks.